Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Military Historians or People 2. We just want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and those of our guests. We really appreciate you listening. Please share and enjoy the show. Oh man, hey, thanks for taking the time. Glad we, glad we finally hey, got this. My pleasure. Yeah, sorted out and everything. You've done quite a few of these now, haven't you? Yes, we have. Uh, we're 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 pushing a hundred. Yeah, um, we're gonna, really? we're gonna we're gonna hit a hundred here probably wow. after five or six more interviews, oh, which is pretty which is pretty dang crazy. Um, Bill, I'm, I I was thinking the other day of a challenge where I was going to challenge you to sit down and and write as many of the people down that we've interviewed as you could from memory. <laughs> I don't I don't think I could get maybe maybe fifty or sixty. Like the minute you said, "Oh, we interviewed so and so," I'd be like, "Yeah, of course," but like just there's too many yeah. now to remember them all. Right, right. Yeah. No, I was looking at the list the other day, actually, and I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, Brian, shout outs. Um, I've got uh, a, a couple of melancholy shout outs. Uh, my, my sisters, uh, my sister Beth and Austin, uh, they had to put their Portuguese water dog Cosmo down the other day. Uh, you know, 15 years old, great dog. And you know, for her kids, you know, they, I think they, they got the dog when the kids were like, I don't know, four or five, six years old and uh, pretty, pretty rough deal. And, and then um, my nephew, Jack, Amy, my, my, my youngest sister, also in Austin, uh, Jack's like 19 or 20 now, I think. But uh, his dog, great name, Chicken Minnie, um, and it's not a small <laughs> dog, but, you know, got the dog when he was like four or five years old, you know, kind of a, a just a mutt thing, but great dog. And um anyway uh chicken mini uh passed over as well a few weeks ago so they, they, they've lost a couple of hounds and, and that's that's tough but we yeah that's rough since we're a pro dog podcast we always want to note uh how much these animals mean to us and stuff tucker is sacked out right now i, I can almost hear him snoring in the bedroom back there he went to uh doggy daycare to woodpoint yesterday and they had a special super bowl b-bowl thing where they had lots of uh, games and treats and stuff like, you know, lots of like, you know, stuffed footballs for them to carry around and play with and everything. And from the Instagram posting, all we can tell is that Tucker just ran around in the background, background barking at everyone. Oh, that's um, cool. But but he's hoarse today. He's actually hoarse. When he yeah. barked this morning, it was kind of a... <laughs> what breed is that? He's a lab, black lab. Okay. Uh, yeah. Labrador Retriever. And uh, he, so he is, he is worn out. Uh, <laughs> which is good uh and shout out to uh, uh our our uk pod podcast dog freddie uh dave and amy report that he's doing a little better uh poor thing's been through the wars with some sort of intestinal stomach issue wow. uh for for several weeks and uh, i think is is finally on on, on the mend so uh, all right so best wishes to to freddie over there in in, in whitney yeah, well, Bruno's not sick. He's good. He's just lazy, um, but uh, he's doing good. All right. So uh, today we are speaking with uh, Professor Matthias Strond, uh, who is the head of the Historical Analysis Program at the Center for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research in Camberley, England. He is also honorary visiting professor at the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Buckingham. Matthias has also served as a senior lecturer in war studies at the UK Ministry of Defense and a military history instructor at the German Staff College in Hamburg. 
Uh, he is a lieutenant colonel in the German Bundeswehr and a member of the military attache reserve, having previously served on the staffs in Madrid, London, and Paris. Isn't that what Mate- Krebs, Krebs was in, right? He was not in, uh, was he? Yeah, he was. I think that might be what, what Daniel was in. Wasn't yeah. he the attache reserve? He wasn't yeah. the attache, yeah, he was attache. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and, a yeah. Lieutenant, and he went out as lieutenant colonel, too, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Well, now, now he's an American, so... Yeah, turncoat. Yeah. But uh, um, Matias deployed uh, to Iraq uh, with the British Army and Afghanistan with both the British Army and the Bundeswehr. Uh, And in 2022, he was awarded the Golden Cross of Honor, which is the German Armed Forces' highest non-combat decoration. Matthias was educated at the University of Münster before earning his uh, MST and DPhil at the University of Oxford. He is the author or editor of more than 20 books, including The German Army and Defense of the Reich. Uh, Cambridge did that one in 2010. How Armies Grow, The Expansion of Military Forces in the Age of Total War, 1789 to 1945, put out by Casemate in 2019. Winning Wars, The Enduring Nature and Changing Character of Victory from Antiquity to the 21st Century. Uh, Casemate did that one in 2020. And World War I Companion, uh, done by Osprey back in 2013. His book, Blade of a Sword, Ernst Junger and the 73rd Fusilier Regiment on the Western Front, 1914-1918, will be published by Osprey in 2025. Outside of his military and academic life, uh, Matias gives battlefield tours through the cultural experience. And that is kind of how we uh, we, we came to know you personally. Um, I've known your work for uh, for a while, Matias, uh, especially the uh, the book on um, on on defensive warfare in the interwar period. And um, we are extremely happy to, to have you with us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I have to say, well, uh, that was the best pronunciation of my name I've ever heard in the English-speaking world. So there we go. Perfect. <laughs> but, uh, it's, my parents didn't think that one through. So Matthias, of course, being the German version of Matthew. But uh, yeah, I've heard so yeah. many interesting, interesting pronunciations. So that was perfect. Very well, good. I, you know, I mean, we this this will get right into uh, what we want to talk about. Your background. So as I'm, you know, I I listened to an interview uh, of you last night, and your English is too good. Uh, for you to just be a normal old German. So uh, there's got to be a story in there. Um, I mean, you even, you even do the thing where you, uh, you, you, you finish your statements with questions like all Brits do. Um, so, what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean? So um, uh, we, 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 we had a really good time, didn't we? <laughs> um, so, uh, so there's a story in there. Tell us what it is. Uh, where are you from? What did your parents do? And how did you get into history? Basically, born and bred in, in Germany, say... So... 100% German uh, from the uh, the Münster area, so born in a place called Iserlohn, not many people know this one, and then when I was small we moved to the Münster area, which some people know it's got a relatively big university, uh, probably most famous for well, the Anabaptists who were there, rampaged around in the 16th century, um, and uh, the university had bicycles, that's probably what Münster is most famous for. Um, Capital, it's called the the, uh, the bicycle capital of um, of Germany. Sometimes even Europe uh, was was uh, voted the the most. I think the it's the life of water. It's called the most livable place on earth. I think that's called. That was oh, wow. Uh, in twenty, whenever that was, uh, ten or so, I can't remember. But uh, we're mighty proud of it, um, <laughs> which uh, added to the slight arrogance of people from Münster. So in in, in the German speaking world, people from Münster are known for their arrogance. To which our reply was, so what's your point? So it's, um, it is quite true. Um, so born and bred there, 
Um, after after school, um, so got my A-levels, I then did my military service, as we all had to do in those days, because we still had conscription, which of course is gone now, but um, as we know, there are lots of countries are thinking about bringing it back. Um, I did that, I was sometimes say perversely enough, enjoyed that a little bit, and uh, okay. then decided to do my reserve officer commission. Um, most of my friends were doing it at the time. My brother was doing it. Um, so we had a bit of a family history, military one. I mean, nothing terribly exciting or major, but just because it, it, it's Germany, you have, well, you had conscription. All my, my uh, male ancestors spent time in the army, including my father. So that was just a normal thing to do in those days. Uh, it was just a few years. Um, and it also, to be perfect, it was quite good money when you did that. So it was better yeah. doing that um, than doing some sort of boring um, student job. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I thought it was, it was quite good. And relatively early on, I was then even able to move into the military history world while I was still kind of rising through the ranks and all that. So again, I thought, well, rather than doing whatever, stacking shelves or whatever in a supermarket, you do this. And uh, at a very early stage, for example, I uh, went to the Military History Research Institute at Potsdam. Um, I taught, uh, while I was still a student, I taught at the German NCO Academy, which was in Münster in those days as well. So it all kind of, it kind of made sense and it worked. And um, I then went to university and I stayed in Münster. First of all, it was a nice place, it was convenient, but also in those days, it was the only university in Germany that had to chair military history. And that's what I always wanted to do. Oh, wow. That uh, doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Uh, but now there is a chair in Potsdam, which kind of makes sense as you, if you want to call it that, the cradle of Prussian militarism, if you want to use that term. So it makes sense to have the chair there. But in those days, it, um, it was a Münster. And it was, it was absolutely great. It was brilliant because Münster is a, it's a huge university. Um, I think now it's um, it's the fourth largest university in Germany, if I'm not mistaken. It's not a it's not a big city, so now it's around about three hundred thousand. So students everywhere. It's a bit like well, if you've been to Oxford, it's a bit like Oxford. So students everywhere, um, student uh, university institutions everywhere, bikes everywhere. It's really quite nice. And you go to a lecture, um, for example, on I don't know the Nazis or whatever, and you've got uh, just like in a bad movie, two thousand people sitting there because uh, everyone wants to hear it. We went to the military history lecture. It was absolutely brilliant. So um, it was always the same. The the professor was retired, uh, not only retired, but he was a reserve colonel, and he looked like one. So <laughs> very very lean and kind of uh, very fit and, and very short hair, and so it didn't look like the typical you might say German university professor at all. And I, I remember it was always funny. He walked in the first semester of the um, of the year and looked around, and he said, "Well." Ladies and gentlemen, uh, today we're talking about Frederick the Great. I begin. And then he just basically did whatever he did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Second lecture, he looked around with a slight smile on his face, said, well, good afternoon, uh, lady and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> I, so at that stage, we had about six people in the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the audience there. And then the third lecture, he walked in and he always said, well, three people sitting there. Gentlemen, we're amongst ourselves. We can speak openly. It was, uh, it was, it was absolutely <laughs> And then he had lectures with three or four people. So that, that was great. Uh, so I did that. And uh, then I always had this idea of going going to England for a while. I always had this side fable for England and liked England. And it was crazy in those days. Well, it was the days before um, before cheap flights. So I, I would jump on, on one of these really strange buses that would drive through the night to get from Munster to London to then have a day in London and then drive back. And it was absolutely crazy. You wouldn't do it these days anymore. But in those days, that was normal. And so I always thought, you know what, that would be quite good fun. And uh, so I looked into it and I was lucky enough to have a scholarship while I was at university, which made everything slightly easier. 
and uh, then thought, well, okay, let's let's go to the UK and apply to King's King's College to the War Studies course there, and I uh, also applied to Oxford. Um, and then first I got the letter from King's yes, you're in. I said, okay, let's wait another week, and got a letter from Oxford as well. Uh, you're in, so then King's Oxford, King's Oxford. Okay, let's go to Oxford. Did that, and the idea was just to stay for a year. And uh, so I had an extra scholarship to uh, to to pay for the fees in uh, in in Oxford because well that fees are of course quite something quite confusing to anyone who comes from the German speaking world where university education is free, so you right. don't pay a single penny. So it's right. Um, yeah, that's um, yeah quite a big one. And I'd, I'd organized everything to then after that year do the masters and then go back and do my PhD in Berlin. I already knew the professor. I had talked to the university. Um, I had prepared all the paperwork. It had all gone in. I just said, well, just press the uh, the send button when I come back. Yes, brilliant. We're waiting. And um, I then finished my my master's on German army in the interwar period, Hans von Siegt. And so I then started talking, I can't remember how and why, to be perfectly honest, to Hugh Strawn. Because when I was at Oxford to do my, my master's, the Chichley chair in the history of war was vacant at the time. Mm. So my first supervisor was a historian, but didn't really do military history. And, and then I started talking to Hugh because I then learned that he was coming down from Glasgow. And he said, well, you know what, well, if you want, you can do your, your defil with me. So I thought, hmm, Berlin, Oxford, Berlin, Oxford. So um, OK, let's do Oxford. But after that, I'm definitely going back to Germany. That was always the idea. And then about, I don't know, two or about halfway through my PhD, I guess. can't remember the exact year. It actually must have been 2004. I think uh, he rang me and said, "Well, come to my office. I need to talk to you." And when your supervisor says, "Come to my office now. I need to talk to you," they "Oh God, what have I done now?" Yeah, uh, that's not really good, is it? Um, and then he said, he sat me down and said, "Well, I just talked to the guys at Sandhurst. Uh, they're looking for someone who's uh, who does military history, but also understands how the military tick." Um, so um, they've asked me if I, if I knew somebody, and I've given them your name and. Uh, uh, they want to see you, so they want to interview you. So what do you think? Um, that sounds interesting. So um, did that, went down there, and uh, went through the interview process, and was then offered the job, which originally was supposed to be, I think, I remember, I think it was only half a year or something, standing in for some one of these temporary, typical temporary things. And uh, I was then at some stage offered the permanent position, so I had a permanent established position before I even finished my PhD, which, of course, well, as, as we all know in the history world, yeah, it's very, very unusual. So I think I've, that's I've, how Stu Mitchell, I think that was his track there. I think he went down there for a, a temporary yeah. position. And that's and how I think 80% of people. Yeah, probably um, a bunch of them doing, there. Yeah. I think Dan Martin as well when he came and um, most people started like this. And then somehow they were very good in those days working some sort of magic to turn these temporary positions into established ones. So it's um, mm. they've been very, very good, I have to say. That's um, yeah, they've been really good. Yeah, so, so then... then Sorry, yes. Back, well, back up a little bit. So, so what? What did your folks do? Uh, so, of course, now they're all retired. Uh, yeah. My parents. Um, uh, so, my father he was a surveyor uh, by training. So, he spent uh, two years in the army. And again, just said because it was conscription. When he when he did conscription, it was eighteen months. And he said, "Well, you were marched into the uh, the the." He said, "What what did it for him was the other ranks mess. He didn't like it because all very filthy, what have you?" And said, well, "You know what? If I sign the dotted line." To just an extra six months, two years, uh, they make you an NCO and you get to eat in the nice mess. So that's that's what he did. <laughs> um, well, yeah, my mother, well, she did an apprenticeship, then worked in a shop. And then when, when I, my brother came along, she uh, was a housewife for quite some time and then went uh, went back to work as well. My brother also went to university and uh, did geography and uh, now works in, in that particular area. So he actually works an awful lot with the American Army. 
So he's working for a company that is now doing um, evaluations. And so whenever the, the US Army in Europe, um, for example, take over new installations, they go there, they test the ground, they do this, they do that. Um, uh, so he's also working within the military framework, so to speak. Hmm. So, uh, okay, I have a question. Um, I, I assume that you're around my age. I'm 46. Are you, is that the, your general That's wheelhouse? That's pretty much spot on, 47, yeah. Okay, so so you were in the military at, at a time when obviously things are changing in Germany. And I'm asking this because I really, I mean, I, I don't know the answer and I'm, I'm interested yeah. in it. How, how did the reunification and bringing in soldiers from former East Germany, how did that work in the military establishment? I mean, you've got conscription in, in West Germany, obviously had the Volksarmee uh, over in, yeah. in East Germany. I mean, what was the gap like when they said, okay, we're going to bring these these guys, men and women in from East Germany and, and, and bring them into a unified army? Mm -hmm. Well, there are two different points here. I think the first one is when you look at this whole question of unification on the whole, it's it's been a relatively long and painful journey. And I, I would still say we're probably not 100% there. Right. So our generation, I would say, probably the first one where it mattered less. So even at university, back back in Winster, roughly speaking, half my friends came from, from, from the former West, the other one from the former East. So it didn't really matter anymore. I mean, you just laugh about it. And it's probably gone away now. But uh, in, in those days... 1989, 1990, early mid 90s, that was quite different. Um, and it's just simple things like I, I still remember when the wall came down, then you had the, the people from the east coming across to visit uh, people in the west in the small village I was growing up close to, close to Munster. They arrived and everyone just basically walked out. It was a bit like, it felt a bit like the zoo. So everyone standing around looking at them because they had funny, funny clothes, <laughs> funny hairdos, and drove right. a funny car to a bun. So it's, uh, it, was, it was a bit like that. Um, but generally speaking, at least at the official level, the, uh, the military was the one institution where this whole unification brings things together happened probably um, at the quickest pace and happened um, quite well, you have to say. Of course, there were differences. Um, it didn't all go particularly um, smoothly all the time. I mean, one of the things that people still talk about is, is demotion. A lot of the uh, East German officers got demoted because they were very officer-heavy. And um, I remember talking to, to one officer who was... Um, I think it was a major, might, might have been Lieutenant Colonel, and he was then demoted to captain in the new army because that was kind of the rank equivalent. And of course, you can imagine that that's not really all that good and nice and what have you. But right. to be perfectly honest, um, so we had one or two when, when I joined the military, we had one or two people from, from the former East that never really, never made any difference. And to us, that was kind of normal. And we actually, we kind of liked the idea because it was bringing the country together. Um, yeah. But there were there were issues, there were problems, and it was also just you know, basic training stuff. When I remember talking to uh, to our um, relatively old NCOs or officers or whatever, so I joined in '96 after A levels, and these were people growing up during the Cold War, and uh, yeah. well, they started, started talking about well, shooting at the commies and and the evil East German. Hey, we don't do this anymore. Um, so there were <laughs> certain things like this, but uh, particularly in the military, I would say that disappeared relatively quickly, um, and now you have a, a relatively large contingent of, of of East Germans still serving in the army. So there's there's quite a few, and the army, of course, like all military, like all government organizations. And then start moving um, installations, things into the east as well. Um, what's the famous one? So the Military History Research Institute, yeah. which um, was based in Freiburg, right. where you had the military archives. Uh, that's now at Potsdam, which where it should be, which makes sense. Right, right. Um, you have the uh, the officer academy, the army officer academy, which uh, the West German one used to be in Hanover, which is now back in Dresden, which 
makes sense. So there are certain things that they're trying to make sure that you get posted from left, right, right, left, up, down. Uh, so the, these whole the inner boundaries, so to speak, disappears. So you you go to the UK um, and you you manage to just you know effectively develop these language skills to the point where you know you're you're not thinking in German and translating in your head right now. I mean, you are. This is you know. You yes. you seem to be extremely extremely proficient in uh, in English, so you you have really immersed yourself when you got there. It is it is quite funny actually these days. It, it's really quite bizarre. I've got no idea how the brain works, but I am um, I still talk and speak German every day when I ring my family or what have you. So that happens, yeah. and it's really weird because when I talk to people I know, um, it's perfectly fine. I don't have any problems in German. If I talk to people I don't know, sometimes I start uh, searching looking for the words because I can't think of them. It's really bizarre. I've got no idea how that works. Yeah. And in particular, when it comes to work stuff, you're absolutely right. Most of it is it's done in English now, including writing. And I remember writing an article not all that long ago, and that was in German. I gave it to a German friend of mine to just proofread and comment on it. And he said, it's pretty obvious that you don't write an awful lot of German anymore because the um, uh, <laughs> style, he said, was, it, was, it was very, very English. I don't know what British, I, I didn't notice that anymore, but uh, yeah. there, there's a bit of that. Yeah. Um, it's to a degree, of course, well, when, when you come from continental Europe, of course, well, everyone learns a little bit of German. Um, I was talking to someone not long ago and we we're talking about foreign languages and, and he said, well, being able to speak English is not even considered to be able to speak a foreign language anymore. You just expect right. to know it. Yeah. Um, so that's that, uh, of course, a different level. But um, even I remember when I came across to to England, there were certain certain moments where, where I was slightly lost. Um, so I remember going. It was actually I went to to Portobello Road and I went into um, a Tesco, so one of the supermarkets, to buy I can't remember whatever you buy, can of Coke or something like this, and I pay. And and the lady well gives me my change back and says, well here's your change back, whatever it is, fifteen p or whatever. Cheers, love. I was very confused. So why are you calling? Why are you calling? Cheers! I'm not. I'm not buying a beer. It's a coke. Secondly, we're not in a pub. So what? Where's that coming from? Yeah. Um, and why are you calling me, love? I don't even know you. So I was very, very confused. So it, it's these these colloquialisms that take a bit of time. Yeah. And of course, the other thing that I had, and uh, that was the probably the Oxford school. So I think the first year I was just well, basically a lot of, of Germanic terms, expressions, pronunciation were beaten out of me. Uh, that yeah. was well. And the standard phrase was, "We don't say like this at Oxford." That's uh, that, okay. <laughs> there you are. Right. right, right, right. So let's talk about uh, some of your work, especially your early work. I'm really intrigued mm -hmm. that you latched on to the interwar period uh, and and looking at at the conduct of, of defensive battle. Mm -hmm. Right um, mm -hmm. when. You know, at least from an American perspective, uh, we love ourselves, you know, the cult of the offensive. You know, yeah. we're, we're all fascinated by that. Yet you chose uh, defensive warfare. So how, how did you come come to that topic and that period and that emphasis? Well, another interesting story. So um, that's why we're here. Sitting... Interesting stories. <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting in the office with Hugh, Hugh Strawn. So I just started or just about to start as the um, as the default student. And we're talking about well, possible subjects. At that moment, I had about three or four different ideas. And we're talking about this and that. It was all very much World War II related. And I said, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be interesting to look at the second half of, of, um, of the Second World War and just see what the Germans were really doing? Are they still are they still acting? Are they only reacting to outer pressures? So how does how doctrine development um, um um, go in this in this particular period. Um, how is this this whole idea of what I even I had in this in my head at that time this whole blitzkrieg thing? Um, how is that uh, uh, related to defensive warfare on the Eastern Front? So fortresses, all that kind of stuff. So how how does this all come about? And yeah, that sounds fun. Okay, good. So I said, um, okay, I'm off to the archives now uh, to to have a look. So I spent two three weeks, whatever it was, in, in Freiburg. 
And uh, while I was looking at some of the stuff, I then thought, okay, if you want to understand what happens in the second half of the Second World War on the German side or defensive warfare, uh, you should probably understand a bit more about what happened beforehand. So maybe the the uh, the first chapter of the of the default is going to be everything that happened before. I don't know World War One, Frederick the Great. I didn't have a, a really clue to be perfect. You know? So let, let's have a look what's there. And I thought, well, where do all these people come from? So it's uh, their experiences first World War, and of course, then they all really grow up during the interwar period. And I thought, well, maybe a chapter on that would be quite good. So I started looking at uh, some of the interwar documents, and very quickly the penny dropped. And I thought, well, no one's actually ever looked at this. And whenever people had looked at so the interwar period, of course, it was always the birth of, of Blitzkrieg and all, all these things. Um, and I thought, well, there's there's much more here. And so the one thing that really cheesed me off, there was uh, another uh, researcher, show my nameless, sitting there, non-German, looking through the same documents, looking at interwar uh, period stuff. And it was quite nice, actually, because well, I finished a document and then get, handed it over. And that, that other researcher, well, when I took about an hour to read something, would finish everything in two minutes. And I know that that person is not a German speaker, really. I thought, what are you doing? How do you do this? And I'm just looking for, for, for specific words. If it doesn't have the word Blitzkrieg in there, it's not an interesting document. You don't care, yeah. And I said, well, okay, well, they didn't don't really use that term at that time. So well, how can you? Oh, no, it's fine. It'll be fine. I thought it's really, really annoying. So well, you're basically approaching it completely the wrong way. I thought, well, that's probably how most people have approached this particular period. So I thought, you know what? There's so much here that would be quite interesting. So went back to Oxford, went to Hugh and said, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do because I found so much stuff here. Um, that's probably more than enough uh, for, for a defil um, on the interval period. What do you think? And he's like, very simple. That sounds far more interesting. Um, uh, switch fires and change the topic. Um, and that's what I did. And that's that's how it all started. Wow. So <laughs> what do you remember what years you were down uh, working in Freiburg when that first happened? Hang on, say I uh, 2001, I came to Oxford, 2002, I did my master's, so that would have been between 2002 and 2005. Okay, I feel I probably I, I probably ran into you in the archive down there, just didn't know. Probably. It. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do you remember? Uh, I don't know if you remember the name, but there used to be a, a woman who worked the desk now. Her name was Frau Weibel. Oh, Weibel, I remember her well. I remember she, her very well. Oh, she, she, uh, she was one of my favorite people in the entire world because she was so quirky, uh, such oh, a, yeah, an, an interesting lady. Um, I've got so, an image uh, in my head, but I'm sure it's nowhere near accurate. But it probably is. It probably is. Yeah, it probably me. is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> It's an interesting place because I then also did some internships there, and once I did even army army stuff in the in the archives, and it was really interesting because when you then get uh, uh, to to see what goes on behind the scenes, and there yeah, there's uh, some interesting stories there as well, and interesting stuff happening. Mm. And so yeah, and fascinating when you go to that that one particular cupboard, which is called the uh, uh, what they call the poisonous cupboard, because with all the um, all the Hitler stuff in there, the oh, original yeah. Weisung, all that locked away. And you, Take it out. I think it is quite cool, isn't it? Seeing this and holding all this, and uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a fascinating place. Mm. Well, uh, complete side note: uh, the last time I was in Freiburg, I noticed that um, there's a brothel now right across the street from the archive. Quite <laughs> some time to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is so, uh, just opposite. Absolutely right. That is yeah. very true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, it's um, well, it's, it's quite the whole the whole setup there is now quite strange, isn't it? When you think about it, say so the, the fact that the archives is still there is is a bit silly, really. Yeah. And on a serious note, it was it's interesting talking to some of the people from from Potsdam from the Research Institute. Um. So there's now uh, there's a bit of a cultural shift because in the old days, 
the people lived in Freiburg, even though guys who worked in the in the uh, in the, in the research center. And you either go uh, go to the house, go left to the to your office, or turn right to the archives. So they spend a lot of time in the archives. And even when they then moved to Potsdam. The first generation, they still lived in Freiburg, so they basically would just commute. And they were quite happy to say, well, I'm not coming up to Potsdam, I'm staying at home and go to the archives. This has changed now. So there's there's yeah. an interesting dynamic. So you can see that people are a bit uh, less keen on going to the archives these days, which is quite interesting uh, when you when you look at this. Um, yeah, that, that That is really interesting. And, uh, you know, it's people have taught, you know, you've got the German naval archives or, or yeah. files, you know, sitting down in Freiburg. Um, so that doesn't make much sense uh, in a lot of in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, I have noticed that uh, the you don't you don't see people going to the archives like uh, like you did even, you know, just one generation of of us ago. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about your uh, your your writing, your audience. You you, you seem like you have a, a mix of academic obviously but also some some stuff geared more maybe to a more popular audience is that is that a fair assessment yeah i think that is that is, that's absolutely right so my my own proper research is, is of course academic when you look mm -hmm. at this but um it's not least through um my main job that i do so working for the army um, a number of the books that i've done um are the results of research projects that um, i did internally for the army so quite right. often when i then get tasked with something um, I then write the internal study. Some of it might be classified or whatever. And then I always think, well, isn't isn't that a bit of a shame if you just write something that, that that's then going to get locked away, and no one well no one ever will ever read that. Um, so I then uh, take the deheated version um, and and then publish it as a book. And but it's the same tone because the idea is to um, to attract uh, as wide an audience as possible, and that's including including the military. And okay. uh, well, at least here in this country, if if you write too academic and in too an academic way, well, the military are not going to read it. So you want you want to be relatively engaging. Let's put it that way. That's, that's true here as well. Yeah, no, that, that's I think that's universal, and that, that's one yeah. of the biggest problems with I think the academic historical profession writ large is we're, we're still we're still writing for each other too much. Yeah, I think we need, yeah. we need to reach out more, and that's all fields, not just military history, but I, I think all fields. I uh, I reviewed a book recently uh, for Journal of Military History, and it was done by Casemate. And mm -hmm. uh, I just went to Amazon and looked at it. There must have been a hundred customer reviews of that book. I mean, you know, people are are interested in those affordable. Yeah. Um, you know, well written, but written for a popular audience. Um, you know, works that are that are being done by by publishers like Casemate, Osprey. Um, so uh, you know, we we clearly need to be paying attention to that. No, you're absolutely right. And then of course it's 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 this, it's the style, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. footnotes can be quite deterring. It's also, but let's face it, it's also cost, isn't it? Yeah. You yeah. publish something with a um with a university, a university press, these things are so expensive that let's face it, no one buys them. That's um and you and you can't blame people. I mean, that's just the way it is, isn't it? That's yeah. Uh, uh, it's funny you say that because I, I just I reviewed a, a book on on Vietnam not too long ago, and it's a big thing, and it's from more of a popular press, but you know, it had it had footnotes, but I I I after I submitted the review, I kind of kicked myself because I was like, you know what, I kind of got on the guy for 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 not citing some things. Mm. And I'm like, that was a publication decision. That was an editing decision. You know, they, they had to. And so, you know, back off a little bit next time. Right. Yeah. I kind of kind of like, ah, come on, Bill, you can do better than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So when you do the projects internally for the Army. Uh, which are uh, again usually classified materials and whatnot. Uh, what what kind of cleansing process do you have to go through to then turn that into something public facing? 
depends on what type of project it is. It could be that um, you have to uh, have it signed off by the MOD. So there is a certain right. office that looks at publications. So everything to do with um, with the military, uh, the current military needs to be signed off by that particular office. Um, they are in particular worried about photographs. So I did, it was a, like a coffee table book, the history of the Gibraltar regiment. And so that had to be sent in. So all the pictures there came from, from the unit itself and then from uh, from veterans or what have you but you still had to send all that in and they check for everything because they're quite worried that there might someone might be there who might be on someone's list or something and you might give some information away right not, it's not really so much in that stay with this book in, in that regiment but um where they get really really uh itches when it's about special forces and things like that understandably sure uh so that's the one um, and i always well if you either do that um or what I always do is, well, internally in our in our department, I talk to to the boss. And there are two or three other people uh, keep an eye on it as well and give them stuff to read. Is it okay? Can you sign it off? Yes or no? Um, uh, and or you go through this uh, this this official office that is there that that is supposed to sign things off. But once 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 you've done it a few times, you know you know, you kind of know already what is um, uh, the tricky bit, what isn't the tricky bit. Then you just take that out and then. It kind of works. Yeah. You get a feel for it, don't you? You develop a feel for it. As always, when you um when you then turn some of the historical bits um of take the turn it into the book, the moment it's historical, it's far less far less right. difficult anyway. Right. So I'll give you an example. So the very first one, very first project, it is this how armies grow. So this is actually why I was brought in into this um the Center for Historical Nurse and Conflict Research across from Sandhurst. Uh, so we looked at um, how armies grow. I did uh, I did the German side in the interwar period. Well, that's what you know. Another guy did um, well the internal project did the uh, the British Army, and then based on that we came up with some recommendations, conclusions uh, on what the British Army should be doing, shouldn't be doing, stuff like this. And this is where it then got into the classified um, uh, arena. Uh, we took all that out and then we asked uh, a number of other people to to write chapters as well and put that all together because then it was very historical. For the 17, 18, 19, 45. To be honest, then no one in inverted commas really cares. We still, right. you still let it run through the process just in case, because we also make sure that we put the uh, the chaser stamp on it, so there's some sort of official uh, linkage. But um, then it's it's relatively easy. So um, you, interestingly enough, uh, have have served with both the British and German armies in Iraq and Afghanistan. How, as a historian, did did your training? impact what you saw going on around you. And what I mean by that is I think if I were in that position, I would already be thinking about how this the history of this event that I'm witnessing or participating in is going to be written. So yeah. what is it like as a trained historian to then be out in the field? Um, you know, how does that impact, you know, your day to day? I think I think it's a two way journey. The first one's exactly as you just said. That's that's exactly what happened. So um, uh, when I look at my diary, it's a very, very long diary that I wrote because I was writing down everything. Uh, just because, well, that's that's how you train. This is what, uh, well, it might be useful for something later on. You might be turning this into something, whatever. And uh, it was really interesting um, because I then used uh, some episodes, uh, particularly from from Afghanistan. Iraq, for me personally, was relatively quiet because I was inside the wire. Um, didn't really go out, but Afghanistan was slightly different. There were a number of um, of um, of episodes that I could then take back to uh, to Santos when I was still teaching at Santos and teaching the cadets were talking about counterinsurgency and ambushes and all that kind of stuff. And so there, as I said, there were a few, few instances that I um, that I could use for this. And it was really interesting. Again, just going through when I, so I knew well, tomorrow I'm going to be talking about this in the seminar. So what do you think actually happened? And I go through it in my head and this is what I go to tell them. And then I thought, okay, look, what does that actually tell me about well, my notes? Let's check the notes. And I checked the notes. And it was always interesting, kind of 
consciously thinking about this, how my notes were very different from what, even within three months, four months, five months, since the last time I taught it, how my memory had shifted and changed, which taught me an awful oh, lot, for example, about oral history and things yeah. like this. Yeah. Since that day, yeah. um, I'm, I'm extremely, I'm extremely hesitant to believe what people tell me. Um, just because I've, I've realized it myself, and I've got this, as I say, well, the, the trained brain, you, you pay attention to this. If you don't, um, then it's a different story. And uh, what I also noticed is that it really helped me to to read and analyze and understand sources and also secondary material in a very different way. Yeah, uh, I mean, my prime example, for some strange reason, I'm not quite sure why, but I was out in Afghanistan and I took uh, in Storm of Steel and Zunga with me. Because I probably just thought, well, that's what you have to do. I'm not quite yeah. sure why. Um, but um, I remember that I was then, uh, we're doing stuff, we're outside the wire, and then um, we, we we came back. And I was just reading this episode from, I can't remember which one it was, probably about Epoch, the song where he's talking about coming under fire and being in the dugout for days and weeks, what have you. And while we'd been out, we'd just, while we'd been shelled and uh, and, and mortared. Um, and of course, it's a completely different, uh, different, different setup. So it's, it's not like like the drum being the drum fire on the Western Front in the First World War, but you had a few shots going off and a few came relatively close, but it completely different. And yet I still remember sitting there reading these lines about being under fire and these explosions and how people go crazy. And I think, ah, okay, now I get it. Uh, now I really understand. So it really, it changes, it changes the view. So this whole, this whole question that you always find, well, do you have to have military experience in order to be a military historian? Um, I don't think you have to, but somehow you need to really be able to understand what these people are talking about and um, and what these people go through. I think that's, and whether it's personal experience or some in some other shape or form, but I think yeah. that's really important well and on a uh, a different note but somewhat related um how much more complicated did brexit make your life <laughs> <laughs> well don't get me started on that one yes um personally to be perfectly honest not as bad as expected um i do remember that uh when i woke up uh the the, the, the morning after the vote and i uh, checked the news um and I thought, what the heck is going on here uh, I didn't have a, I didn't have a warm and fuzzy feeling because my mum and I that evening I went to bed and the results were coming in and so I think the very first ones to declare were Newcastle and Newcastle uh, re, uh, voted against Brexit but they said it was I can't remember the exact let's say sixty eight percent or whatever and they, oh that's quite low we're expecting uh, quite a bit more considering it's a young population student town all that all that kind of stuff said oh that that doesn't look good okay it'll be fine it'll be fine <laughs> and then the result came and you think bloody hell so the first my first reaction was okay I'm going to pack my bags now I'm off. Yeah. Um, uh, well, this is just absolutely ridiculous. And then, of course, you had this period where everyone and everything was in limbo. No one knew really what was happening. Right. And that, in many ways, was probably the most stressful time. It's just simple things like there was all these these rumors and things. Well, say, if you don't hold a British passport, will you still be able to, to work in this country? Um, and even if they let you work, uh, if you then um, apply for a different job, um, particularly government or universities, will you be able to do so as a non-Brit? Um, that was actually the time where I then uh, very quickly applied for dual citizenship. So um, okay. I've got that now. And I did that as quickly as possible for that reason. And the at that stage, the German the German law didn't have your two passports unless the second one came from within the EU country. And of course, at that stage, UK was still a EU country, so I had two years to do it, which I did. In the end, to be honest, um, for me personally, not all that bad, mainly because I got the two passports. Yeah, it okay. really makes life quite a bit easier. Yeah. So it's simple things like uh, you arrive at the um, you arrive at the border, uh, going 
to Germany, what have you, um, you've got the British passport control. I hold up the British passport. You go to, to the EU, you hold up the EU one, and you just right. wave through. They even, they even big signs that say, if you've got dual nationality, please here, hold Use, up your yeah. one. Here, hold up your uh, the other one. It just makes life easier. So it, it hasn't been as bad as feared, um, but it's still yeah slightly weird. I mean, the biggest shock I once had, I had to order a new uniform. And silly me, um, I gave them my address here in the UK, so they send it across. I didn't think that one through. And because it's no longer you, I then had to pay tax, and that was quite expensive. So that, like that. Um, but it's just simple things like this where you think, really? Um, yeah, so that makes it a bit difficult. But um, uh, I know of a lot of people um, who either are thinking of or actually have left this country. That's uh, that's been quite quite a brain drain. And I did apply once quite a few, well, it was just after the vote, and there was a job going in somewhere in Ireland, I can't remember where it was. And I was actually approached and said, well, what, what do you think? Do you want do you want to apply them? Okay, that sounds fun. So I did that. And then I wasn't even shortlisted. And I said, well, that, that's a bit strange, isn't it? So why do you ring me and tell me and then you don't right. talk to me? So I got in back to what's going on here? Why did that happen? And I'm oh, terribly sorry. But actually what happened is we were completely swamped by applications from the UK. Um, he said, well, two years ago, um, you probably would have got this job, uh, not without an interview, but you would have been right. in um uh whereas this day we had uh I don't know how many applications and i said that's all the eu people trying desperately to leave the, uh, uh, the uk yeah there was uh, so that, there was that that's that's gone away a little bit uh everything has calmed down a little bit but on the other hand people coming across trying to to make their lives so now that's that's much that's much more complex and complicated uh so hmm. getting visa finding jobs um um some of the things like if you work in a certain certain area, getting security clearance, um, that's um, that's quite difficult. Um, but yeah, so there are, there are underlying issues. Mm. Interesting, Brian. I'm trying to get my mom to apply for an Irish passport. Yeah, I've uh, you know Carrie's because uh, if she gets one, then I can get then I can get. One. Yeah, that's how we would have to do. Um, Carrie would have to get her mom to uh, to get Irish, um, and then we could get it through her. But yeah. uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, how many people on this island here suddenly um, rediscovered the Irish roots after? Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, nothing yeah. had ever made being Irish so cool in England, <laughs> <laughs> or or American presidential elections. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, battlefield guiding. You know, I assume this this began probably with doing staff rides, right? Absolutely. That's exactly yeah. how it started. So um, I still remember the uh, what, couple of the first ones I did. Uh, so it was it was all to do with the British Army, of course. And the first ones were the usual suspects. So we're going to Ypres, going to Normandy, going to the Somme, and you do that. Right. But I still remember it was my second term at Sanders. I'd only been there three or four months. And suddenly the boss knocks on the door and said, um, Stalingrad. I said, yeah, Stalingrad. Oh. OK. Um, ever been? Uh, of course I haven't been to Stalingrad. What question is this? Well, I would have said, fancy going? So what do you mean fancy going? Well, there's um, divisional HQ. They go to Stanga. So these were the days when we kind of still not really friends, but well, we could do these things. You could do them, yeah. Um, and so basically, half a year, half a year into my time at Sandhurst, I got to go to to Russia for about two weeks and do a staff ride Moscow, Stalingrad, and Kursk. And I thought, well, this wow. this is the best job. This is the best job under the sun. I mean, it doesn't get yeah. any better. That's exactly <laughs> how it started. And um, and then I, I I enjoyed them immensely. I think they're good fun. Um, I like like going to the battlefields, exploring them. I also think if they're done well, that's always the big one, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. They need to be done well. Uh, they're an extremely useful tool for the military to learn stuff. Um, there was a time when the army went 
predominantly on what's called bottle field tours. So that just when there was a holiday, kind of get drunk, have a few nice meals and come back. These days uh, are long gone. So they they've right. uh, they are gone. And now it's um it's quite strict. And there's of course a big difference between the staff rides and and battlefield touring, uh, where as as you all know, well the uh, the academic is on center all the time. When you go on the staff ride, you do the introduction and then really the historical piece is only there to to be the foundation, the starting point for what goes on in the military today. So that, of course, is always the idea. And sometimes, it doesn't always happen, but uh, sometimes it's really good to see where it can have a direct impact. I mean, the best one was probably where I did a staff ride, was a senior staff ride, taking the entire senior cohort of British Army generals to Berlin to look at mm-hmm. um, urban fighting. And on the on the back of that, um, there were quite some some changes introduced into into the urban fighting doctrine in the British Army. So that was that was this really brilliant. We can see oh, interesting. Yeah. And then it was also absolutely fascinating because we went on a recce there, and that was quite funny. Um, and um, the guy at that stage, he was a brigadier. And he said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just um, if we could just hire bicycles and cycle along? And I was just picturing this. So you got basically the entire the entire generalship of the British Army, two stars ended up cycling through central Berlin on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to open up some promotions very, very quickly when they all get run over. And so yeah. like, it's brilliant. Oh, let's do it, it's brilliant. So we hired bicycles in central Berlin. And I said, okay, what do we do with it? I'll show you. And they got on the bicycle. So it was him and um and, and I think it was W1 or whatever, warrant officer. They got on the bicycle cycled off uh, within 50 meters they nearly had got run over twice at which oh. point they got off the bikes returned the bikes that were probably not a good idea um that was, <laughs> that, was that was quite funny so yeah so that's basically how it started um i then uh, i then started doing a lot of first world war ones and that was um, particularly because of the this operation reflex of the centenary of the first world mm-hmm. war oh yeah yeah and there was a lot going on here in the um in the uk um they really um, invested a lot of time money and resources from from the army perspective it was incredible to see uh, that was that was really quite something i've never seen anything like like this again um also international um, so I sometimes represented both the uh, the British side as the as the academic and the German side as the military representative, which sometimes was a bit strange. Um, yeah, I remember one of the meetings that was quite funny. Say, so I can't remember which one of the three big ones it was. So there was on 2014, uh, 14, 16, 18. That's when they did the really big ones with hundreds of people, uh, chief of staffs coming out, and and all these things. And so I was asked to uh, to present on locations and stands and this and so i stood up and said well as the british representative i would like to say that we should be visiting one two three four five and do this 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 because that really shows the uh the british army in the first world war and blah 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 and um then i sat down and i've been briefed by the germans before and what they wanted by the german mod um and i kid you know at that point i then moved one chair to the right <laughs> and I said, as the German representative, I would just like to say everything that my British colleague pointing at myself uh, has just told you doesn't work because what we want is one, two, three, four, five. Uh, people are very confused. I said, yeah, I know it's a bit odd, but uh, but there we go. Um, that normally works quite well because there's an awful, of course, obvious um, obvious overlap and what have you. So it works quite well. And so that that got me. Well, that kept me very very busy for 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 quite some time, and, and I'm still doing them now. So one of my my tasks at at, at the Chaser is um, doing um, battlefield studies for for the British Army. So there are quite a few we're still doing. And uh, as I said, I, I like them. I think they're, they're a brilliant tool and, um, and and very, very useful and very, very good. So how then did you get into doing the, the battlefield tour then? The battlefield touring bit, uh, well, basically I was asked. Um, so I received an email from someone. Um, I think the very first one, 
I think it was actually through uh, Bob Kershaw, if you know him. Hmm. So he uh, retired colonel. He is the one who wrote Never Snows in September. It's probably his most famous book right? Uh, about the Germans in, in Arnhem. So he is uh, half German, half British, if I remember correctly. He speaks fluent German, uh, retired as a colonel in the, in the Paris, in the British Paris, went to German Staff College. And we did one of the Russia staff rides together. And that's how okay. I got to know him. And then he right. was already in that business of, um, of of battlefield touring and doing lots of things. And I, I, I just think he got too busy at some point. And I think it was him, if I remember correctly. He got in touch with me and said, well, um, I wish it was the Russia tour. Um, Say, so we're doing this, but I can't do this. Well, I'm too busy. But uh, considering that we've done Russia before together, say, so would you be interested? I don't know. That sounds fun. So I did did a, did a battlefield tour to Russia. And uh, since that, we doing some other tours, well, mainly Berlin and uh, maybe a few other ones in the pipelines. And um, for the university um, and the military history club, um, I am now doing an annual tour as well. So that also keeps me quite busy. So yeah, it's, uh, it's all good fun. Doesn't, again, Kershaw, didn't he do stuff through the cultural experience too? Sorry, who did? Kershaw, but doesn't he do those? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's that's how he started. So the uh, okay, the Russia yeah. one that he did, and that's um. So I think if I if I get this right, the Russia one that he did for the cultural experience was more or less based on the one that we did for the army. Yeah, and that's why he then came to me and said, "Well, we did this together before, so and I can't do this gotcha. one, whatever." And he was just yeah. too busy, I think. So, would you like to do that for me? And that's how I that's how I got my uh, that's how I got the uh, the foot in the door there. Mm. Right. So, when you're doing these, do you um, sometimes blend your staff ride stuff for the people you're doing a regular tour for? So, my my first question, when you when you take a military group, you you kind of know what they're after. There, my first question is normally, what's the rank structure? Because that kind of to a degree decides um, how tactical you, you have to be. Right. operations to teach whatever they want so that that's that question i always ask there and so one of the first questions i ask when you do the the private tours or the civilian tours the battlefield tours and you don't know these people is always well do we have any people with military experience um have you done any of these tours before because that then influences the way you can do things right. do i need to explain formation structures do you know this do you know what i don't know a colonel is and what a colonel does or do you not know this um and then you have to well the, the first the first half day is, is quite often it's kind of well testing the water and uh, um how detailed can you be um do you have to be are you losing them are you not losing them uh so there, there is a bit of that yes so i think you have to be you have to be quite flexible um no that's a good point because i felt like this this recent trip to vietnam uh several of the group had military experience yeah including yeah. one Australian who had actually served in Vietnam in 1969. Uh, but they had all had either national service or, hmm. uh, you know, the, the UK people. There was one, I think, retired major. Of course, you had the, the, the Royal Marine. Um, you know, they all had some sort of, uh, you know, military experience, mm. uh, except for yeah. maybe one or two. So he kind of had to find that sweet spot of exactly. not insulting yeah. their intelligence, yet sharing with them something they don't know about because... You know, most of them didn't know much about yeah. Vietnam. Half of half of them were reading Max Hastings' book on Vietnam on the bus <laughs> while we were there, which was great. You know, but but you're right. You got you got to kind of feel it out to figure out. It's, it's a bit of an art, isn't it? And it's um, yeah. it's a general, if you want to call it issue or problem or challenge, whatever you want to call. It. I mean, it's the same. I remember that uh, when when I was at, at Santos and you're teaching the cadets. It's exactly the same thing because the way the British do is very different from for most other Western nations. So they they finish school. Then most of them, now about 85 or 90% of them, they go to university 
and then they join the army. Right. So you don't have to have a university degree, but most of them do. Yeah. But again, you find you find uh, well the left and right of arcs that they're, they're so so wide that uh, you might find someone in there who's got a master's degree in 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 war studies. I mean, in many ways, the most impressive one, you know, wasn't relevant to what we were doing. And there was someone who had a, a PhD in physics and had worked as a senior banker in the city, then got bored and decided to join the army by the age of 28 or whatever it was. <laughs> um, you get people like that. And then you get the complete non-grid of people with completely, well, in inverted commas, irrelevant degrees, at least for, for what you're doing here. And again, it's how how do you then, how do you organize this and find that particular sweet spot? So it's right. a bit of an art. And it's one of the things I think where, where I think that, Sandos is a really, really great job when you when you're in this in this world. Um, so I always say Sandos is as a first job for any military historian who wants to not only write books but become a public speaker and exactly well build these bridges between military audiences and and pure civilian audiences and mixed audiences. It's a, it's a really, yeah. really, really good way of of, of learning this um, because you have to be you have to be on the one hand, of course, you have to be good and sound and and right and incorrect in what you say so based on the source and all these things but you also have to do it in a certain entertaining way because if you don't they fall asleep yeah um, yeah that's and that's just the way it is and some people particularly when you then talk to people and you do mainstream academia they just don't really get it and right. i i always i remember they fell asleep in my lectures as well that happened to me and i always remember then I always thought back because I had a number of times where people at Sanders and even go, oh, why are they falling asleep? It's all in Paul. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I always said, you know what? Cut them some slack. Because I was thinking back to my own personal um, basic training. I remember being marched back into, into a lecture hall, which has come back from an exercise in the field. We're still uh, full with all the, uh, the stuff with rifles and face pain and all that. And we're marched into this into this lecture theater. And um, up on stage jumps this, this warrant officer and says, gentlemen, no women, of course, in those days. Um, we now have a session on CBRN. Uh, no one's going, oh my God, here we go. And then he said, well, gentlemen, I also know you've just come back from the exercise. So here's what we're going to do. Here is the video. Those were the days so I can tell you how old I am. A VHS video. He held this up. <laughs> and it said, uh, uh, this session is 90 minutes. The video is exactly 85 minutes long. Sleep tight. Put it into the machine, <laughs> press the play button, walked out. As he walked out, he, he turned off the light. Best 85 minutes uh, instruction I've ever had in my life. I'm still grateful to this man today. So and I, I can relate. I know what they feel like. So it's but if you're not used to that, it's difficult, isn't it? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is great. <laughs> but that was that was that was a bit of an eye opener after. So I always think back to it. I think, yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. So That's so where are you off to next then? Uh next things what's uh, so next week I'm going to Germany and but that's that's a private trip visiting the family. Uh, and then work-wise, uh, just today I had another meeting about um, a staff ride. Um, and this is going, it's an interesting one, actually. So it's with a medical unit. And they want to look mm. at the development of medical stuff. Not an expert on that, but I've done a little bit of medical medical stuff, staff rides and what have you. Um, and they're comparing World War One and World War Two. So it's a yeah. week in, uh, in France. Basically, we're going to Verdun, which is very unusual for the British Army. No one ever goes yeah. to Verdun. So right. I thought it was very, very good. If it is, if it, if that is the right word, it's the best. You know what I mean by best. Uh, the best battlefield that you can visit on the Western Front. Verdun is just it's just mind boggling. Yeah. Uh, and then from there we go and have a look at uh, the Battle of the Bulge, and and then come back to to the UK. That's the one. Um, and then there are two or three other ones lined up. So uh, tomorrow I've got another meeting uh, for Army HQ. We're going to, well, we're going uh, Monte Cassino. Um, I'm mm. currently putting together one for Crete. That's a private one again uh, through the through this university course. Uh, so yeah, it's it's um, quite busy, keeping me busy. Mm. Yeah, you yeah you are a man on the go. 
Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's all, it's, as I say, it's all good fun. It's one of the yeah. problems. But all of the stuff, you always get asked to do things. And the problem is everything is always interesting. Yeah. So it's you very difficult it. to say no, isn't it? Right. That's yeah. it. It's, it's a yeah. blessing and a curse. Or sometimes when I, I just look at other people and think, well, just imagine a normal nine to five job in an office where it's... Uh, I had a friend of mine, for example, we went to Oxford together and uh, he did um, physics. Um, and uh, he, hated his, he hated his degree and then he hated his job because he was working in the city. And he was making an awful lot of money, so he bought a flat in uh, in, uh, in central London, bought, bought, paid it off in two two years or whatever. Whenever I talked to him, I said, "Well, I hate going to work. I hate my life." I said, well, that's not really good, is it? So uh, you think, well, if you get out of bed and think, "Well, that's brilliant that we can do these things," and everything's so interesting that I just can't say no. That's actually that, that's, that's quite that, a bonus. That's isn't a good it? problem yeah. to have. Yeah, that's good a good problem. life. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we should do some rapid fire, man. Yeah, let's do the rapid fire. I think, I think he's I think he's earned it. Yeah. <laughs> he's listened he's listened to a few of these i think so he, he knows he knows what this is i about. don't know what's coming mm. yeah 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 so uh we'll ask you 10 questions brian i'll ask a couple i'll ask a couple answer as best you can and as always be mindful that because it's our show and it's ultimately about us uh <laughs> we, we reserve the right to uh, comment and judge on your responses <laughs> very good <laughs> all right question one what is the title of your autobiography the title of my autobiography. Um, I didn't think of that one, actually. I heard it before, but I didn't think of that one. Um, trying the best you can. Okay. okay. Trying the best you can. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, that that all makes right. sound very clever now, didn't it? Well, yeah, what else can we do, right? Right, exactly. right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah. All right. In your opinion, what is the best World War One memoir? I have to say it is, well, I can debate whether it really is a memoir or not, uh, but I would go with uh, with Ensinger, uh, Storm of Steel. I know when yeah. you say memoir, it's a bit difficult, a bit different for a number of reasons because I've read it a number of times. Um, I'm actually currently working on on a book um, on all that. Right. And I right. think the first time I read it was about um, when, when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, uh, which got me interested in the First World War. And it's, it's interesting because I've reread it and reread it and reread it. Yeah. And the interesting thing is it's also, well, you, your own personal journey. So you read the first time, you go, oh, well, probably, oh, my God, isn't that exciting? Great, blah, blah, what happens there? And as you grow older and you've made your own experience and you read in a different way and you read between the lines, all that kind of stuff. So just for that reason, I think it's um, um, it's um, even from a personal point of view. For yeah, me, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I assign it uh, in classes very often. And um, I was at a language institute back in 2002, the uh, Goethe Institute in Rotenburg, yeah. Optetalba. Optetalba. And um, yeah. I went into a bookstore and uh, I said, can you order, um, you know, Storm of Steel? Uh, in in German because I want to I want to read it in German and the yeah. look of horror on yeah, yeah. the person's face and I was like I'm I'm a historian and they were like oh okay but just like in their mind anyone who would want to read that yeah, it's, it's easy <laughs> isn't it it's very easy yeah. um, but it's also interesting because I went to my book to the the literary archives where you've got the personal papers and they're all there you, you look at oh, the yeah. originals and all that and um, yeah they tell a very different story as always I mean that, that's yeah. that's normal isn't it but yeah. uh, interesting yeah. Hmm. Okay, teaching. Would you rather teach World War One or World War Two? World War One. Ah. Very simple. Quick, Very quick simple. answer. Um, All right. I get it. Um, yeah. yeah. It's. Uh, I find the war exciting. But again, if that's the right word, just like the best battlefield, but it's an interesting war. Um, I think most people underestimate, underrated. Uh, there's just people sitting in trenches. Well, there's a bit more happening. Oh, yeah. Um, much. And of course, it's also it's from a political perspective a bit easier say the moment you go into world war ii immediately you've got this whole political thing you've got 
national socialism, got um, um, Bolshevism, uh, communism, all these things, which can sometimes overshadow the the military side of things. And if you're interested more in the military side of things, then um, yeah, it's it's easier to look at World War One. Okay, what is your favorite battlefield tour? My favorite battlefield tour is the one we can't do anymore. That's Russia. So going to yeah. the big one, a number of times, Moscow, Stalingrad, and of course, just of course. because it's just yeah. amazing. Uh, the whole, the whole, the whole tour is amazing. Um, so, what is Kursk like? Is it? Is it still? I don't know. If, I know for a long time it was just pristine it, for many yeah, years. It's still a bit like that, yes. Right. So, particularly the uh, the southern part. When you go to the uh, the Pokhovka bit, there is a big museum there. Um, there is, um, yeah, it's, it's a tank museum they've got there, and it's it's all it's uh, the story that's being told is still very nineteen sixties, you might say, story. Mm. So, well, uh, this is where the fascist beast was defeated. Oh yeah, it's got, uh, in Vietnam, the, same thing. The, the imperialist it's puppets, a bit like that, exactly, and, and yeah. also of course all the monuments are still from that period and what have right. you. Um, but it's it's just so ridiculously big and large that. Yeah. Uh, but you're on this tour and you drive around. You do normally two or three days of the southern sector, the, the Battle of Pokorovka, which of course is very very different from what the uh, the, the Soviet sources tell us. Uh, once you look at the German sources, and then you go to the north and have a look at uh, have a look at that as well. And it's just sounds a bit odd, but after a while you get a bit bored of it. Uh, in particular of, of monuments, because you sit in the coach and someone says, ah, and there's there's a T-34 memorial to the left. Ah, okay, there's one to the right. Okay, there's another one. That's like Gettysburg, yeah. 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 It's a bit like that, so exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But it's, it's still very interesting. But the, in inverted commas, the problem with that is it is it's, it's so big that you uh, that's basically a tour itself just because of geography. Um, the most exciting space is, uh, spot is probably, I would say, Stalingrad. Um, yeah. Because there's still quite a bit is still preserved. Um, it's interesting how it's changed over the years because the first few times I went there, it was still very, very socialist and very communist. That then changed after the, I think it was the World Cup, wasn't the Football World Cup in Russia? Remember yeah. that was yeah. 20, was it 14 yeah. or whatever that was? Yeah. Because one of the stadiums was there, so they played some of the matches and that changed things. So the uh, the airport has changed, it's now Western Airport. In the old days, um, that was just basically was a runway and uh, the arrivals hall was basically, it was like, like, like like a concrete hut and that was it then a yeah. tractor arrived and that was on the tractor you found your luggage and that was just dumped out in the open that's 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 how, it was. how, that's that's how Hanoi was the first time I went there 25 years ago and same thing there have been a yeah. number of changes but it's still yeah, when you hit particularly I mean there, there are two places in the world when it comes to, to history when when I go there and I just see the sign I get these uh, these shivers down my spine uh, the first one is Stalingrad. Every time while well, you land, then it says, well, Volgrad, and you go, when you know what happened. Um, and the second one is Verdun. Uh, these are the two places yeah. for me. Um, it's also just because of the, the fighting um, and, um, and also family connections and, and all sure. this. So, um, so yeah. that's, that's right. Uh, the second uh, the second favorite one, I would probably say, I would say probably Madrid. Madrid is nice. done a number of Madrid tours. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's just because the story itself is interesting. So Spanish Civil War, looking at right. that. Yeah. Again, some people yeah. know a little bit about us, but not an awful lot. Um, and um, it's just nice. Madrid is nice. It's yeah. a nice world. You get good food. And it's it's just it's just a nice tour. It's, sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Switch gears a little. What are you binge watching? Uh, binge watching. I'm re-watching and re-watching at the moment Babylon Berlin. Oh, yeah. Um, are, okay. Yeah. So... You know, they're taking it, they're taking it off Netflix in the U S and we're not going to get the final season bill. Really? Yeah. So it's, it's on the countdown now to be removed from Netflix in the U S. So we're going to have to do something to be able to get that last season. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Oh. Cause it's, I mean, I, I, Americans 
liked it. It was a hit mm -hmm. over here. I don't know why they're taking it off. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it's got something to do with contracts and money and all Contract that stuff. Right. But, right. but um, yeah, well, I'm with you. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I might rewatch it before it goes, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite sure if the uh, the audiobooks have been uh, or the, the books have been translated. They probably have. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, because as always, I mean, if you haven't read them or listened to the audiobooks, as always, the books are, are, are better than the uh, than the films. I mean, the films are good, um, mm -hmm. but the um, the text themselves are, are much much deeper. The usual thing. There's one episode. Not, if, you, if you read them or not, there's one where, for example, he then goes off to uh, so Raj, the. Uh, the commissar goes off to um, uh, to East Prussia, and you've got all this thing with East Prussia and the Poles and all that. So it's, it's, there's quite a lot there that that goes on. Yeah. It's yeah. really good. So um, at the moment, I'm rewatching the um, uh, the last series that is out there, but I'm I'm trying to find something that I'm missing because my personal feeling is that the first few series were very very good, um, but as you go into it, it's kind of losing its edge a little bit, and I'm, I'm thinking it's because the first one was very much about. And it's the same with the texts and the, uh, the the books as well. So the first one's very much about Berlin as well, the city of yeah. Berlin. Yeah, and, and yeah. And I think this is all disappearing. It's now becoming, because he's now moving forward, it's the 30s, it's the rise of Nazism, all these things. And it's becoming very political, which of course is important, but uh, this is, seems to be taking center stage. So I think the, the angle has shifted and changed a little bit. I think Pinky um, Blinders had the same... Yes, yeah, that's very true. Exactly. Sometimes when it's a bit past its prime. So I'm, I'm rewatching the thing. Am I missing something here? But I don't think I am because right. quite a few people have, have said this. But it's still it's still very, very good. Mm, like okay. It. Well, mm. that is that is disappointing because uh Bill, I'm like you. I got it. I didn't even watch the last season of Peaky Blinders. Um I yeah, loved I it the, the first yeah. couple yeah. seasons, and then I just got to the point where I was like, eh, no. Nah. Yeah. Um so okay. Um when I ask this next question, I mean contemporary. So now, um, better uniforms, British or German army? British. British. Really? Depends. Let's let's put depends. If you go for camouflage, definitely the Germans. Um, we did actually some trials a long, long while, not a long time, but a few years ago, because the British army, of course, changed their uniforms a few years ago. So they used to have two different uh, sets of, of camouflage uniforms. So the green stuff uh, for Europe. And then the proper desert stuff for obviously the desert. Right. And then they did away with that. And now they've got this 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 funny whatever color that is, um, which I I wanna keep pointing this out. It's, uh, it's uh, it works quite well I think in the green zone and helmet. Doesn't work anywhere else. It's either not green enough or too green. <laughs> so, so, so you yeah, can we did wear some, it before actually, and after Labor Day. <laughs> it's a bit like that exactly. So we uh, we actually did some tests on one of the staff rides. I was in uniform, so we're just standing in the middle of, of the um of, of a forest and then a field. And we well basically just like some sort of dress people. We had all these pictures taken. And then just compare and contrasting. The Brits were always standing out, so they're either not green enough or too green. Um, uh, and of course, while the German camouflage looks quite good, I mean, there's still this. Some people would say it's the running gag, the running joke. You have to be careful how you say it because politically it's quite quite difficult. Mm -hmm. But they did say that uh, when they were thinking about introducing camouflage, because even when I joined down, we didn't have camouflage. So we had this horrible American 1980s olive green horrible right. stuff. Yeah. Um, and then they introduced the camouflage and, and that went to the proper combat troops first. And that was when everyone rushed to the surplus shops to buy at least one set of proper combat. Because it makes it look like a proper soldier, not like some sort of, I don't know what. <laughs> um, and the, the, the rumor, the story behind that is when they were um, uh, coming up with the design that it took them about three or four years to uh, to basically finish the design and then introduce it to them. And so the running the running joke there is it took them two minutes to figure out the design. And then two or three or four years trying to disguise the fact that yes, it is the Waffen SS pattern. Yeah, um, okay. It's, it's very yeah. much. It's, it's very very close to it. So yeah. it's, uh, it's quite. Um, so so 
there would go to when you go to um the number twos the the proper dress uniform um it's definitely the british the german ones yeah. are not particularly nice they are and the biggest problem that you find in general i mean if you've got a well-fitted uniform i think they're quite okay there were a number of problems there the first one is i'm allowed to say this germans don't have any style <laughs> um, um, but they're always too large, too big, and the same goes for uniforms. They never fit. Whereas here in the UK, there's a very, very different approach, particularly for the officers, because all the uniforms are tailored, so they look right. they look sharp. Yeah. Um, and the other big problem that you that you had in the in the German case, particularly with the army, uh, you had this this grey uniform, and uh, they did call it the Fifty Shades of Grey, because everyone <laughs> everyone had a different type of grey, and it looked really weird. So they've kind of done away with it now, but. It, just looks pretty awful. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, there were actually some, uh, some 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 thoughts at the German officer school a few years ago to bring back a proper dress uniform. And they'd already kind of done the designs and going back to Prussian uh, uh, heritage and that, uh, uh, reintroducing a sword as well, a saber to be carried and, and all this. But um, yeah, it never really kicked off. So yeah. they're not, not very good. That's, fraught with um, peril. Fraught with peril there. Yeah. Mm. Okay. What are you reading for pleasure? Well, the problem is that even when it comes to pleasure, I normally read some sort of military history stuff, which is quite, quite scary. So, but again, right. it's, it's this bit that you say, well, when you turn your hobby into your job, that's, uh, that's, that's quite that's the price you pay. Yep. I just ordered a book, which I'm supposed to be reviewing. I think that probably is class kind of as pleasure. It's called How the French, How the French Think or What the French Think. Um, it's an analysis of um, of French culture, French thinking. So I'm mm. supposed to review this, but I class this as, um, as, as pleasure reading. Oh, so mm. Okay. Well, it's not deep, dark military history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like what I'm reading for pleasure right now is actually a biography of Lou Reed. Um, almost done with it. And that leads me into this next question. You get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? And for me, it would not be Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. <laughs> Can't do it. But who would you listen to? Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash? Really? Wow. Wow. I love wow. Cash. First shout out to Johnny Cash. I love it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's that's good. I mean, I've got to, well, when when it comes to kind of genres, I would I would I would probably go Northern Soul. So that's different. But if you say well, one particular artist you have to yeah, listen yeah. to, then uh, I, I would go Johnny Cash. I would. It was strange because when I was so back in Germany, there was this thing that suddenly my friends and I, I'm not quite sure how that happened actually, that we were getting into Johnny Cash, and basically that's all we ever listened to uh, for hmm. years. Uh, we even had this great plan. I'm not quite sure where this plan came from. Well, actually, maybe because it was devised in a bar on a Saturday morning at 4 a.m. Um, <laughs> so the idea was that so we're sitting in Berlin and this best friend of mine, he was doing a PhD in law at the time. And I was doing my uh, my DPhil uh, in, in, in history. And we said, well, once we finish our PhDs, what we're going to do is this. We're going to fly to the States. We're going to fly to somewhere in New York, wherever, uh, buy a pickup, uh, which must cost more than $500, no idea why where that came from um and then we're going to drive through america particularly the midwest um and we need to have two things and the first thing the first thing really is obviously because it was 4 a.m in the morning uh, on, on a saturday uh, saturday morning uh we have to wear pink stetsons i've got no idea why pink but they had to, they had to be pink don't ask me why there's better no be explanation. careful where you drive through man yeah exactly <laughs> afterwards i'm quite glad we didn't do it in the end and the second thing is we <clears> said we're going to have a tape and this tape is going to have two and a half it was very important it's two and a half johnny cash songs uh, and that's what we're going to be listening to for the four weeks we're driving through the midwest of, of america in retrospect probably a good thing that trip didn't happen to be perfect yeah. Yeah. i love it though that's yeah. great that's great i think the the folsom county the, the folsom prison uh recording is one of the best live yeah. recordings you can ever ever oh yeah it's absolutely brilliant it's, it's funny when he then... uh james holland he when he's a, got out of college he did the same thing 
They, they, yeah. they, he and a buddy went to, came to the States and bought a pickup and, and drove around the United States. That's, that's yeah. great. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's hilarious. Never happened. But as I said, probably a good thing, particularly the pink Stetson thing. I'm yeah. The sure. pink Stetson thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that depends on where you're oh, at. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see what we can do about finding you one of those. Well, the, of course, the other thing that we wanted to do on that trip, but that's why it would be a pickup because we buy a Winchester as well and then shoot all the buffaloes that still exist. Uh, <laughs> the other idea, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to buy any food. So we'd have buffalo burgers without without the bread. Ah, uh, uh, the Germans, the Germans in the American West. Yeah. Well, there yeah. we go. There we you go. You love it. You love it. Uh, yeah. Was, um, yeah, uh, yeah. As I said, probably a good thing if this trip never happened. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you are you are a a man of two worlds, the the British and the German. Um, do you prefer German directness or British politeness? These days, it's probably British polite enough. Notice this. Whenever I go back to to Germany, uh, I never get anywhere. It starts with trying to to buy a ticket, for example, at the train station, because I'm not doing the British thing. I queue, whereas yeah. Germans don't. And right. so I'm the person who stands in the in the um, at the train station, and someone runs into you, and I apologize because I'm standing in the way. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I can do German directness. I can deal with it. I know a lot of people. Lots of people can't. I can deal with it because I'm used to it. Um, I can switch if I have to. Um, I don't like doing it, but I can. Um, but I, it's, it's the British way I prefer. Last time I remember, last time I was back in Germany, my father, I was sitting in the car with my father, we're driving somewhere, I parked the car, and suddenly he, he burst out laughing. He said, what's funny? He said, there's absolutely nothing German left in me. I said, what's that? We first, first looked at you. <laughs> I looked, look at your clothes. I bet even your pants. Well, they are, they, are, they are British on it. Yeah, they're from Marks and Spencer. Probably. Yes, they are. Okay, that's the <laughs> one. I said, just look what you just did. I said, what did I just do? Well, you drove this German car to a German car park, and you drove in, and immediately you went left. Yeah. No one would ever go left because you drive on the right, you go right. And yet that shows me there's nothing German left no. in you. I wouldn't go that far, to be perfectly honest, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, Still. it's sometimes a bit difficult. Mm. All right. Uh, the final question, always the same. Um, Bill, the Texan, me, the South Carolinian, different ideas about barbecue. Appreciate it all. Um, for you, um, have you you've spent time in the U.S., right? Just a little? Just a little, but basically my American, well, U.S. experience is very much uh, the uh, the New England states. So okay, so this, this is right. going to be a tough one for you then. Yeah. Um, do you prefer uh, pork, the brisket, pork or uh, brisket, which is, uh, which is beef? Pork. Very Pork. simple, straightforward okay. answer. And that's, right. that's, that's, that's the German in me. So that's yeah, uh, yeah. That, yeah. That's, yeah. Understandable. that's, that's well, uh, very, very well, straightforward. There, there is a major movement uh, in in Germany of American barbecue restaurants. Like I've even seen yes. in Berlin, there's a place mm -hmm. called Blackbeards, and they are smoking yes. out on the street. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's so, uh, so this whole barbecue thing really kicked off a few years ago. And I think what really, generally speaking, was this this huge thing. Uh, was um, was COVID when people had to stay at home and so yeah. well the, the fancy schmancy barbecue, uh, and then they started barbecuing away. So that became a big thing. And you're absolutely right. When you go when you go there now, left, right, and center, you see even while these well, what they call proper barbecue restaurants. I'm not quite sure if you'd agree, but uh, that's a bit like seeing uh, the typical German restaurant probably in I don't know Chicago. Is that typical German? Not quite sure. Yeah, but, but, right. Okay, so right. That's the well, same you know. I, I originally like at first I would be like I'm not even going to eat that there's no way that it's any good but um I went to a barbecue place in uh Copenhagen in Denmark last mm. summer amazing so from now on I'm going to be open-minded about it um because yeah. you, you Europeans can do good barbecue 
Oh, All right, yeah. Matias, that was great. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, this was fun. This is really and, good. Uh, had Thank a great you very time. Much. It's brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. It was great. All right, man. All right. Well, hey, take, take care. care. Have a good rest of the evening. Yeah, good to chat. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. See you, Brian.